It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. And Dr. Matt, we are back. People, well, lots of people. Well, not really. Lots of people. But some people say, some hey, people. hey, are a you, person. Yeah. Are you guys still doing the podcast? And the answer <laughs> to that is yes, we are. Uh, we took some time off the holidays, uh, schedule conflicts and whatever happens. I feel like it was mostly your golf trip. There was a little bit of my golf trip, and then you didn't want to do a solo podcast, and then, what? yeah, you did say that, and then it got a little busy, and so, yeah. but we're back, and we're ready to rock and roll. I think after four years, only missing one week is pretty good. You know, we've been tremendously consistent. I'll give that to us. If and consistency else, is key when it week. comes to uh, recovery. Yeah. Yeah. For sure it is. So I've got some stuff to talk about. You've got some stuff to talk I about. Just real quick. But, yeah, yeah. We've got a dear friend in studio who- uh, Somebody you've known a long time. Over 30 years. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to hear her story for the first time. So that ought to tell you something. The, you're not a very good friend? Or? Well, that sometimes that we suffer mm-hmm. in secret. That's true. You know You're what I right. mean? And I so shouldn't have said that. And we're going to find that out. But I wouldn't, you know, you predicted this two years ago, Dr. Matt. You said, um, you think it's bad now. It's going to be a lot worse. And I think we're starting to see that. I mean, I think like the mental health, and the mental health, the addiction yeah. and all of that. I mean, it, we, we, we said it two years ago. It was a perfect storm. People were at home. They were isolating. Oh, yeah. Uh, the world changed uh, forever changed. I mean, uh, and yeah. we're seeing that. I even still work from home. Something I thought I would never do. And I still work from home two days a week. You know, and, and there used to be memes going around on uh, the internet talking about what's in the coffee mug because people are working at home. And <laughs> right. Is it coffee? Is it vodka? Well, um, to to prove that point, uh, Utah liquor sales went, I can't even remember how high, but it more than doubled, I think, during the last two years. And so, it, it, and people are reaching out to me nonstop. And, and that one is true, uh, nonstop, uh, mm-hmm. you know, trying to figure out their addiction uh, and, and people going, hey, how did you do it? What's going on? Now, we often said on this podcast that everyone's addiction is different, mm-hmm. but there are similarities in most people's addictions. Um, what I'm saying, the, the reason why, uh, you know, whether it's a trauma or this or, or well, what it is. There's definitely similarities, sure. And, and and people, they go, how do you do it? And we've said there's a hundred different ways up Sober Mountain. Right. And you've got to find the way that works for you. And today and tomorrow, there'll be people who are blazing their own pass up Sober Mountain. So it'll be 101, 102. For sure. But what I do want to tell people is that there is a lot of experience in the rooms, the AA rooms, the podcasts, those who have battled addiction mm-hmm. before and have got 15 years of sobriety under their belt. And so those people we should listen to. We should, you right. know, because a lot of the stuff that you're going to come across, they've already done it and uh, maybe once or twice and have figured out better ways to navigate that. Well, I learned that uh, 
professionally years ago, maybe back in the old radio days, mm-hmm. and I, I we would let people call in and ask me questions, and uh, I remember somebody coming in saying, you know, you've probably never heard this before, but, and then I can't remember what it was, but it was so routine. I said, well, you know, I talk to people about that every day, and there was silence, and then they said, really? And I said, yeah, does that surprise you? And they said, yeah, I really did think I was the only person that had this problem, and it was uh, for that person uh, the first step on getting some help because they they had been holding it in, like you said, suffering in silence, whether that's an addiction problem of any kind, whether it's a substance or some other sort of behavioral addiction. Negative thought. Yeah, or anxiety, depression, uh, obsessive, compulsive worries, whatever it is. You need to open up and talk to people because we can all benefit from each other. And sometimes the biggest benefit is just knowing you're not alone. I remember talking about it the first time I went to a uni. That's where I detoxed. And uh, that Sunday night, I went to my first AA meeting. And I stood up and I said, hi, I'm Casey Scott. I'm an alcoholic. And I wasn't sure what I was saying. I just was doing what I was told. But I remember looking around and seeing over 30 people in that room. Mm -hmm. And for the first time in my addiction, I did not feel alone. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow. There's other people out there just like me. I mean, I've still got friends that are my friends that I went to college with who go out and party and it hasn't ruined their life. You know what I mean? And I, and I always used to think to myself, well, what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? How come these guys could do what I'm doing, but it's not getting them divorced. It's not getting them DUIs. It's not losing them jobs. What's wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me? And then finally I was around people who were like, no, there, there's actually a lot of us. And right, and, and you're, you're not alone. You're, you're not alone, and your differences make you feel alone, depending on who you compare yourself to. And if you don't open your mouth and talk about it, then your comparisons are few and far between, and so you do feel very alone. And in your case, you know, I think it was even more. There was more pressure to keep it private because you're a public figure, mm-hmm. and we've talked to lots of folks, you know on the show who are public figures who've come in and shared their story uh, of getting into recovery, but how many years they spent hiding it because they didn't want anybody to, to know that they were, they were having these sorts of addictions and problems. And that brings me to what we say on this podcast all the time. Uh, the opposite of addiction is an abstinence. It's connection. Right. And through podcasts like this uh, and 12-step meetings and Narcotics Anonymous meetings and stuff like that, you find your community and you find out that other people are suffering just like you. And it's not because they're broken. Uh, it's just because there's something a little bit different. And we've got to figure out a way to navigate this world and get ourselves into a healthy lifestyle and get us into a world of recovery. Because recovery is different than sobriety. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, you right. have to be sober to be in recovery. But- you don't have to be in recovery to be in sobriety. And some people think sobriety is the end goal. And it's not. The end goal is recovery. And it's living the life that you are meant to. Living a fulfilling, authentic, genuine life. Uh, you know, over the uh, the Thanksgiving weekend, I heard from somebody that quite a while ago I had referred to Al-Anon. Mm-hmm. Because they had a family member that was really, really struggling for many years with addiction. And they found their group there. They found people that they could relate to. They themselves didn't have the addiction, but like we talk about, addiction is a family disease. Mm-hmm. So whether you're the person that's struggling with the addiction specifically, or you're a loved one or close friend of somebody who's struggling, you need to find your community because there's support for you out there. And, and that brings up a good point. I think we should get Alan on back on the podcast because I tell people all the time, I think uh, the majority of our listeners 
are not those that are in active addiction or even so much in recovery as so much as loved ones of those battling looking addiction. For support and help and options, yeah. L- looking for help for themselves, looking for help for their loved ones, and just trying to figure it out because there is no playbook when it comes to addiction. It's one of those things that you just you hope it never happens to you, but the reality is, is chances are it's going to happen to either you or someone you know, Yeah. and, 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 and then what do you do? And, and what they used to do is send somebody away, not talk about it, and hope or pray that it goes away. And addiction is not a disease that you can hope and pray away. You need to do the work. Right. You need to you need to you need to there's just no other way around it. Yeah, it's one of those things that if you try to keep it to yourself and deal with it yourself, you're just like recreating a wheel and you're never going to be successful. There's so many people out there that have been where you're at, whether you're the family member or the person with the addiction, it just doesn't make sense to do it on your own. And so that's why I guess to, to, to bring it back full circle is learn from those mm-hmm. that have gone through there. Ask questions, uh, you know, listen to podcasts, drop in on a 12-step meeting, go to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting, call Al-Anon. I love the story of uh, the folks who, who – the couple that did Renaissance Ranch. Yeah. And how they had their two sons who are now the owners uh-huh. of Renaissance Ranch. Uh, they they couldn't get those boys into treatment, so they started going. Yeah. And they didn't have an addiction. They were just the parents. But they were like, we got to find out about this. We don't understand it. And, boy, they've done some great work for people in our community just because they were willing to go to a meeting even though they didn't specifically have the addiction. So – Thank you for listening to us and, and tuning us in every week. And we are back and we're full strength and we're ready to rock and roll. Uh, I'm dedicated uh, for another. As long as you guys will listen, I will do this podcast. Cool. And so I'm excited. And I'm excited today because I'm going to introduce you to a dear friend of mine. Okay. Her name is Vicky Cordova. Hello. Uh, I've known her for over 30 years. We went to Utah State together. She's married to one of my fraternity brothers. Uh, I DJed your wedding. Uh, at squatters. Do you remember? Do you yeah. remember? At squatters. squatters. Okay. It was at squatters. <laughs> yes, it was at squatters. And, and I, I think somewhere around my house, I still got the glass, the yep. squatters glass with your and John's name on it. I produced those. <laughs> All right. And um, probably haven't talked to each other in whew. a long while. And to be honest, I, I, I didn't know that you had a story to tell. And when uh, you were offered up as a guest, I was like, I want to talk to Vicky. <laughs> Well, a good friend of mine is friends with Vicky, and I think she's been bugging Vicky to come on our show, and I appreciate her and all of our listeners uh, and the investment they have in uh, helping us find great guests, so it's exciting to have Vicky here. Now, so before we get to your story, Vicky, are you a little nervous? I am, and the reason it took so long to get here is because I thought, why would they want to talk to me? <laughs> <laughs> Because you've got a story, and your story is probably one that so many can relate to. Uh, so many people sit down in that chair right where you are and say, if it helps one person, it was worth it. Right. And you're going to help a lot of people, and we can't wait to hear your story. You're listening to Project Recovery. Coming up, the story of Vicky Cordova. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. 
Hey, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. Our guest today is Vicki Cordova, or as when I first met you, it was Vicki Anderson. Yep, Vicki Anderson or Vicki Five at the White Owl. Yeah, the White Owl was the local bar up in uh, Logan, Utah. Is um, it still there? It's still there. Yep. Uh, probably hasn't been dusted since. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> but they had an owl burger uh, that was amazing. Uh, and this was what's crazy, Vicky. It wasn't made of an owl. Was no, it? no, okay. no. But there was this thing back in college, and they don't do it anymore, but it was called free beer. And twice a week, they would give free beer. And basically, it was a way to get you into the bar. And so they would give away a free keg. Now, they were genius. And, uh, this seems against Utah rules. It, it, it was. And eventually, they, while I was in college, they took it away. They were like, oh, you're not supposed to be doing this. Yeah. But they'd give away a free keg. So you wanted to get there early to get a chair to make sure you got free beer. But you got there so early. So, so you showed up. And they had the keg, and you could just get free beer until well, the, it was empty? or Yeah, what? until it was empty. Okay. But they would be say it was like 3 to 5 or, or 5 to 7, but it never lasted that long. But you'd have to get there at one thirty to make sure you got a table to get that free beer. And nobody sits at a bar for an hour and a half waiting for free beer, so of course you order a order, couple beers. Yeah, yeah. And so it was it was, it was was just genius. You know what I mean? <laughs> it, would, it would kill a day because you'd be like, well, I've got to get there for free beer. Yeah. Well, it's 11 o'clock. Well, we want a table, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But I remember some of the best times were the partying we did up in Logan. And it, it's weird is that as I walked in today, I met somebody downstairs that works for uh, the college. And they asked me, they go, do you think the fraternity in your college experience led to your alcoholism? And I go, you know what? That's Was this an interview? Or they interv- no, it, I was just talking to him. Oh, just I was just talking okay. to him. Uh, because we were just talking about the podcast and things that yeah. I do, and I go, you know, that would actually, I like that question, though. Yeah. That's a good question to talk to people who who were in sororities and fraternities, Greek system, and see if they felt like there was a connection. You know, and, and, and so I said, I said, you know, I, I, I think it definitely didn't hurt. but <laughs> Didn't it, help. <laughs> yeah. Well, both sides of it, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Because we knew people up at Utah State or, or wherever that partied that weren't in the fraternity system. Sure. You know what I mean? And so the, the partying was going along. I think a lot of that has to do with just the time in your life. This is the first time you're away from your parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't have to check in. You live on your own. That's why freshman year are the worst grades most people ever get because they show up to college and they're not prepared for all the freedom and and they overdo it and and, and so yeah i mean and, and and so i went to her i was like you know the thing is is nobody ever taught me how to drink it's not a it's not a, a course out there it was like hey well look you have a couple and then you stop well, we, we've covered binge drinking a lot on the show right like that's what freshmen do is they binge drink I, and to be honest with you i think that's what most kids uh from the age of 16 to 29 sure. do is binge drink yeah you know, I mean, that, that, that's just that's yeah. they drink to get drunk. Yeah. And so you can't help but binge if that's your goal. So do you think that the college system contributed to your disease? Uh, if we're looking at it as a disease, I already had it. Right. Mm-hmm. So, no. But I do know that it compounded my behavior and habits. That was a good answer. That was really good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Vicky, so before we get to the college years and after the college years, where did the early years begin? I grew up in Logan, Utah, in a family where my mom was a California girl and my dad was uh, an Ogden boy. Yeah. Yeah. Big 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 o. O. yeah. <laughs> um, and he 
so my mom, it was very important that I became a well-rounded person that was not stuck in the world of Logan, Utah. And so I was around theater people my whole life, and we were the party family. Um, we did uh, the breakdown crew of the theater and everyone would come to our house and if you know what Gia's is we had bagels and Gia's cheeses and good all of that and I knew how to make a a good drink before I was 10 I so your parents really liked to host they were a host and I was the bartender and, yeah. at a young age yeah okay. <laughs> and so they had a lot of folks over and I know enough people in the theater community that that's what people look forward to after yeah. the performance, whether you're the crew yeah. or the actors or whomever, like they all like to get together and have a good time afterwards. Absolutely. And I also, looking the way I did, which was very straight and proper, I really wanted to, and I know my mom wanted to push me away from being put in a box of being the goody two-shoes girl. So I really gravitated and was already in the kind of a party scene growing up anyway. And so, so are you saying your mom would kind of encourage that? Um, she didn't. She really wanted like I went to boarding school in Sedona, Arizona, and wanted me out of Cache Valley. She she just did not want horizons. me to. Yes, yes. She was like, she, the only reason she lived in Logan, Utah, was because she adores adored my dad. So, well, let's be honest. Logan is a beautiful valley. Absolutely. I love it, but it's it's isolated. And yes, so I could absolutely. see how a parent. And I, might... after I left Logan and came back, I absolutely adore Logan. I don't want anyone to think right, any right. other way about that. Yeah. But yeah, I wanted to fit into the cool crowd. The um, and and when you go to Utah State. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I have a friend who moved there and said, should I go to Cache Valley? And I said, you'll find my people because you will. If you go, you will you will find the people at the White Owl. You will find like a, a little group of people that are drinkers and you guys feed on each other and do your thing and, and create a habit and a life that a community. it has to do. Absolutely the a community that will do anything for you. And so the drinking part, Nobody's judging you. Everybody is happy and loving and kind and, you know. But Still, yeah, all it, my it, best it, friends are the ones I met up in Logan. Yeah, and to this we day, drink. Including your husband. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and that's what it is. It, it's a brotherhood. It's a community. And it it is what it is. And, and, and I forever cherish my time up at Utah State and Logan, Utah. I really do love it. Do you remember the first time you had a drink of alcohol? I do. I was five. Whoa. <laughs> Um, is I was that a in new Europe. record on the show? I wow. was in I Europe. Eight was the record well, before. Europe, they serve wine, and my dad was in a sabbatical, and we and we were following Shakespeare. Everything. What did your dad do? He was a dramatic literature professor at oh, Utah State. Okay, all right. Um, uh, so he was on a sabbatical. We went to England, and they poured the wine for me, and my mom went. That's not milk because I could slam milk like I could be in a commercial about it. Um, and, and at that point I, I was like, this isn't milk. I don't like it. it I had no taste for it at sure. all. Um, that was the first time there was way. And then, you know, I think I had wine at dinner maybe when I was 17. Mm-hmm. I think I went to boarding school and then when I came home for Christmas, I would have wine with dinner. So from, from five to 17, no drinking. No. Oh, interesting. And you were at 
boarding school during that time. Yes, and and they partied, but it wasn't drinking. I mean, lots smoking of weed ganja and, there. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't into that either. I really had no interest in that. Okay. So then you end up going up to Logan, uh, Utah State. Yes. And then I found my my people and joined a sorority and got hired at the White Owl. Which was 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 a big deal. Yeah. Those who worked in the at, 80s. White, at White Owl, you had status. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, it was it's the you, cool kids. Yeah. Huh? It gave you clout around campus and in certain social groups that you worked at. That, I mean, it, at that time, it was one of only three bars in town. And it was the bar. And it was, I mean, it was, that was the hot spot. That's where you went. That's, I mean, that was, that was ground zero for all things fun. Yep. Yep. And then as a server there, um, and I found this after I left as well, when you're serving people for hours and hours and hours at a time, when you get off, you are so high strung and moving that it takes a good about a bunch of beer to just get you to the level of everyone else and sort of feel like you're feeding yourself for a minute, self-care kind of thing. And and that carried on. So that was a way to unwind after after a long trip? Yeah, and finally take care of yourself because all these people are yelling at you and pulling <laughs> at you like children as yeah. well. Like decompress. Now, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you this because I don't think we've ever asked this on the podcast, but I've known a lot of people who've worked in – uh, the restaurants and the bar community. And after the bar closes, that's when the help and everybody really turns it on. And then they create their own party. And they usually go to about five or six in the morning. And then they sleep all day. And then they do it all over again. Now, there's good money to be made in bartending and waitressing and being a waiter. Uh, and and, and it, it becomes a lifestyle. Because I know I worked overnights at radio stations. And you find different people. And it, it, it's different hours. And you find your community there as well yep absolutely and the decompression part um does take a while and yeah you all converge together and you know share your stories and and all of that and yeah i i was a general manager at squatters um when i moved to salt lake city and uh which is why i had my party there your wedding i brew my beer with jenny who was the brewer at the time um, and yeah, when we were off work, we went to cheers to you because they stayed a little bit later open and yeah. waited for us to come. And So let me ask you this. At, at any point, uh, your time working at the bars, did you ever think that you had a drinking problem or did you just think that that's par for the course? While I was working? No, because I did not drink while I worked. And, and then near the end... Um, I did, I, I would, I just could not wait to be off. Like it was time for me to get out of that business and I was in a depression mode and, and a decompressant need and self-care need. And that was what I knew how to do. Mm -hmm. Like it's fine. I finally got my own time and that was like, oh, I'm going to sit here and have my beer. So that sounds like me in the sense that. That's the only tool you had in the belt. Yes. You know what I mean? I mean, that's, I mean, that's the only tool I had. I didn't have anyone to talk to. I didn't have any other resources. The one thing that I knew worked and worked consistently was alcohol. Yes. And you also learned through college with your people 
that that was when you gathered and that is what you did. Mm-hmm. And so um, it came hand in hand. The friendships have remained, but at the time and in college, they came hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So, well, and it, the I mean, not to you know make this be a, a lecture, but um, that's like the association. We associate people and events with feelings. And so if for, you know, your formative years, your young adult life, that's how you relaxed was with friends and with alcohol, then as you get older, needing to relax, your brain goes, well, we also need friends and alcohol, or at least alcohol. And that's kind of becomes, it's because it's like Pavlov's dogs, things become associated together, and it elicits. So people find that they can't really relax if they don't have those components to their situation. So, you know, Casey, you've talked about sitting on your back deck with a cigar and a six pack. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about like this, you know, from a very young age, friends and people together and drinking all went together and was part of your decompression at the end of the day. And so it becomes when we when you really look at the science of addiction, it's like it's a lot more than just the, the physiology of the alcohol. For the first year and a half into my sobriety, anytime I heard that of a of yeah. a can, oh yeah, I thought of beer. You're like Pavlov's dog. I, right? I thought yeah. of beer, and I was like, somebody's about to have a good time. Now the crazy thing is, as I hear that now, Bowden, don't be drinking any more soda pop. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know Dad. I mean? it's switch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's switch. Yeah. It no longer means beer or somebody's about to have a good time. It means my son's drinking way too much caffeine, and, and, <laughs> and so it, 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 things do change. Well, and so people that learn about Pavlov's dogs in college, they they don't learn the fact that they also train them to not salivate after a while yeah. to the bell. We didn't tell that part of the story. You don't tell that. It's a boring part of the story. But that's the good part for addiction recovery is like all those things that used to be associated with your addiction can start to be peeled away and no longer be associated with it as you go through your recovery. You're listening to Project Recovery. Coming up in a second, we're going to find out how Vicky's drinking got out of hand and what she did to get herself on the road to recovery. Hey, welcome back to Project Recovery. Vicki Cordova is our guest today. Uh, she talked about her early years of working in the bars and how she used alcohol to decompress. And finally, when you had your own time, how to kind of just self-soothe. Is that correct? Absolutely, yes. And so when does alcohol become not fun or had it already become not fun? Uh, you know, it was, for me, a transition to motherhood was really hard for me mm-hmm. because I used to work at the airport at Squatters and I would literally walk, run seven miles a day just to keep up with with what the you know Clientel. business was. And then you have this baby and you're like, how long is this baby going to sleep? Uh-huh. <laughs> and you're just sitting there in this holding pattern. And I personally was bored out of my mind. So you, you know what I did? Is grabbed a glass of white wine, and what's wrong with that? You know, until all of a sudden, you're, that baby sleeps a really long time, and there's a lot more wine uh, gone than you think. Mm-hmm. You know, and then it it it, it progresses. Well, then the baby wakes up, and you're a little schnookered. Uh, yeah. Well, and yeah, and and I well, I had quite a tolerance. Yeah. <laughs> from from before. So, but. uh yeah, there, there's a point where then you're just, you are tired because you've been sitting there, you know, waiting to attend and then you're exhausted yourself. And so, yeah, that becomes a problem. 
I'm glad you bring that up because that is something that gets talked about in therapy sessions a lot because I think there can be a lot of guilt and embarrassment or even shame around the idea of struggling becoming a mother. And so a lot of women are like, yeah, of course, I, I have this. I, I'm so excited to be a mother. But then there are all these challenges, including changing pretty much everything about your lifestyle. And if you're a person who's used to being on the go and having lots of fast interactions and lots of energy, then now you're just, like you said, attending. That's a tough transition for a lot of women. The tempo is excruciatingly, painfully slow. (laughs) Yeah. You know, in the early years. Now I can like... I think being a server and, a, and all that yeah. helps with two kids where you're balancing everything and your husband who thinks that he's the only one in the room talking and you're like, <laughs> actually, I'm balancing three people here. Multitasking. Yeah. Yes. What moms do best. You, you need to start <laughs> yeah. walking up to him and saying, if there's nothing else, here's your check. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll let him know you said that. So that becomes pro- a pattern, if you will. Yes. And how long does that go on for? Oh, years and years and years. Um, And I think what happened is um, my husband started to worry about attending to the kids because I was like, I'm done. And then he would come home and I would be done. Um, Not passed out, drunk, done, just done with the kids. I'm done. Tag, you're it. Yeah, tag, you're it. You know, and him not being real happy about that because he wanted to have some self-care and drinking as well. And that didn't free up his time either. And, and that's something that a lot of marriages deal with, uh, you know, where the stay-at-home mom has been with the kids all day. The husband's been at work. Uh, you know, he comes home and he's like, I've been working all day. I want to decompress. And you're like, I've been with the kids all day. I want to decompress. And so then that adds a little animosity to the relationship yeah. and trying to figure that all out. It's it, really, really tough. And I think even with non-drinking people, it's that way. Yeah. <laughs> and so... He's worried about you. He's worried about himself. You're worried about you. You're worried about the kids. And the one constant is the drinking, it sounds Absolutely. like. Absolutely. And that that was sort of where the, the argument stopped. You know, it was like, let's just drink wine and, and chill out, get the kids to bed, and then we're all good. You know, but then the day starts over and those days continue. And so, you know, he actually felt like I needed the help and didn't really feel that he needed the help. And in the big picture, we both needed help. But that so was tough. It sounds like this was pretty much an every night. Oh, absolutely. Sort yes. of thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. A codependent relationship. Oh, for sure. So at some point, something's got to happen. Something's got to bring you to the point where you say, I can't do this anymore. Well, I think John reached out to my sister, and my sister helped me get to into uni. Mm-hmm. I've been there. Yeah, been there. Yeah. And um, that gave me lots of tools in my tool belt. But I, I got to think there was a little more to just John reaching out to your sister. I mean, there had to be some. Oh, well, there was that whole thing of me self-doubting as well, going, I know this isn't right. I know this isn't right. I know I shouldn't be doing this. This is bad behavior. I know this isn't right. Now, a so, long time. I, I mean, I battled that self-doubt, uh, self-doubt, if I could get that out, for 20-some-odd years, you know, thinking that I'll do something different or I figured it out this time or that I'm not going to do that again. And then only always coming back to the same place of like, I, I don't know what to do. Well, and for me, it was like, well, if they're in bed, I'm fine. 
Mm. You know, there's my hall pass. Oh, yeah. Give me a hall pass somehow. I'm going to figure it out. You used the D word depression a little bit ago. So talk about that for a second. Well, I've had depression for a very long time. And um, I have gone to therapists and worked on that. Um, But I think self-identity brought and, and motherhood really brought more depression than I realized because I used to be somebody that people knew, and then I was just this person in a house. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was going to say that actually you were from a young age, you know, with parents that were, you know, uh, performers and, and people, you were in that scene of being seen. And, you know, you were an it girl in college if you were, uh, you know, working at the White Owl. And, uh, yeah, I could see how all of a sudden the isolation kicks in and the supports that you had from friends and just having a career all of a sudden went away and the only thing left was alcohol. Yeah, and a, and a big empty house with a little kid. Yeah. Yeah. So before your husband calls your sister and you check into uni, um, did you go reluctantly? Did you oh, go no. willingly? You were excited. Um, my brother-in-law said, you know, they they approached me, and I, I tears just dripped out of my eyes. And he said, "You just looked relieved, like it was almost like how long can I get away with this before someone's going to call me out? Because I kind of need someone to call me out, or I'm going to keep doing this." How long had it been going on? Oh gosh, I was probably it's been four years. I was forty eight. So a long time. Yeah. Long time. Okay. And when you went into uni, what was your thought process? I was like, bring it on. Let's go. I had, I was like the cheerleader of our team. Uh, we had a really close knit outpatient group. We had a great time. It was fun. I think Casey says sick and tired of being sick and tired yep. a lot. And it sounds like that you were ready for that sort of focus on your self-care because you were sick and tired of being sick and tired. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one of the differences between my story and Vicky's story is that, you know, Vicky said, I needed someone to call me out mm-hmm. because that was your turning point. Yeah. And for me, for the past five years, I had people calling me out daily, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I kept, lost a job, or lost two. a job, yeah. lost a wife, yeah. you know what I mean? Lost a lot of things. And, and, and I was just like, no. And it wasn't until I could be honest and real with myself that I was ready to have that change. And so this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast. Everybody's journey is a little bit different. Do you think if you hadn't had the car accident, anything else could have shifted your mindset to where you knew you needed help? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we'll never know. I don't know. But, you know. But I mean, I. We all, anybody, behavior change. You guys, I was out and then I came back before and you guys were talking behavior change lingo when I walked in the room. And that's one of the hardest things people do. In fact, maybe the hardest thing we do in life is really make significant changes or improvements in our behavior because we're so used to doing things a certain way. But that is what that mindset shift is required for a person to get sober and then into recovery. And you're right. There's lots of different ways that we can shift that mindset. Sounds like, Vicki, you were ready and waiting for somebody to call you out. And Casey, you were getting called out all the time. And it wasn't until a big crisis happened, which is unfortunately 
a lot of people's story, right? Well, because I think Vicky said it best is that, you know, she would find a way. You would get the hall pass. And that's what we do as addicts. We find a way. And so as long as I was finding a way to keep my addiction fed and doing all the other things, I was going to do that. It wasn't until that it was my ultimate rock bottom where you might be going to prison. Yeah. You, you know, if you do not change, you're either going to go to prison, you're going to go to... Well, that was my worry when I heard about your accident. Yeah. Was that 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 you would get locked up and that was going to be it for you. Yeah. And so by the graces of God, uh, I'm here today and I'm able to help people and share wonderful stories like Vicki. And you said you went in there and you were the cheerleader. I believe so. They could call me out and tell me I'm wrong, but <laughs> call me up. But, I, but they'd be wrong. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, but I don't think she'd believe them. <laughs> yeah. And so you did uh, uni. So what, you detoxed there for what, five to seven days? Um, no, I spent like... Oh, it was a weekend. It was Friday to Sunday morning mm-hmm. and, and did the detox. And then I did the, is it 32? Like the IOP, the outpatient, yeah, intensive outpatient. And for those who don't Recovery know. Recovery works yeah. yep. is what they called it. What is IOP? So I know it's an intensive outpatient program, but it's somewhere where you go three or four times a week. You process stuff with other people in the program. You see a therapist. Do they test you for alcohol uh, to kind of hold you accountable? You have a urine test mm-hmm. that's unannounced. And so what did you really like about the program? I really liked my people. I mean, my little group. My And uh I guess I, I was so ready to be like okay and and find energy that was my own and in my own pace again. Where and these people were doing it too, mm-hmm. and that helped. I, love I guess. It. I mean, what's what's something that you recall that was one of the first? Like you said, you you got a lot of tools in your tool belt, and and I'm really glad you're talking about this because one of the things that a lot of people don't believe is that they can get sober and be in recovery. And I think a lot of people look at it as, I don't want to go up to the hospital. You guys are using the term uni, which is where I've worked for almost 20 years. It's now Huntsman Mental Health Institute. Yeah, they changed and it. they changed the name. But um, a lot of people feel like, oh man, I don't, I don't know if I want to go there. Um, but you had such a great experience. Can you think of like one of the first new tools that really hooked you that you were like, I really like that. That's really helpful to me. That is a good question to help other people. <laughs> um, I guess truly the group, I have somebody who didn't end up going because they were in the wrong group. They did not have a success story. Um, and then they got moved to our group. And it was a good fit. Mm. I think it's very important. There was another friend of mine that went and she was like, these people are half my age. And she did not come back. Didn't feel like a good fit. Never came back. But I think you're bringing up a really good point. And that is we don't really recover in isolation. There there has to be, I think for it to be a a lasting effect, there needs to be a, a community, a group that you connect with. And so... You know, it's not unique to to Huntsman. Uh, many places, all places, really have group options, and you can connect with other people that really relate to you. I do think that I got lucky, but I think that the leaders, um, I think it it would be very 
important for them to be able to. I know that people go through recovery at their own time, but if people could um, be picked for a a group, because I know we had two groups that kind of coincided and one ended up being good. Um, If they if the leaders could really figure that out, I know it would be tough. But if they could do that, that would really help. There were other leaders that that just did not work for some people and they were at odds. And I don't know if they were at odds with their sobriety or really the leader because that happens. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So what's life like now in recovery? Well, it. I have so much energy. I and it, it it's peaceful. I did want to address something Let's before I forget. Sorry, is um, you and the the whole hall pass thing. Mm-hmm. I find that knowing you as a friend and the people that you hang out with, I believe the reason why it took what it took for you to decide to do it was because. Their friends were like, come on, you know, jostling him around. And that was just his community. And that's who he was. Uh, For me, which made me mad, was I was all of a sudden a mother and I had to act like a mother. And that's what made me have to kind of pull out. Where with you, I think it was, um, you know, I, I was celebrated for for my party and yeah, ways. I mean, yeah, I, and I so was, it kept on going and going I and was going. Encouraged. I mean, and yeah. as a father, you don't have to be this little person like I have to be as a mother, which mm. makes me mad. But I'm in a good <laughs> place now. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, but th- I think that's why you different. can go further and further and be like. You know, until the cops call me out, I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to do anything, right? And, and, but I'm so grateful for my sobriety and my recovery, and uh, I'm 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 living the best life I've ever ever had, and I've done some amazing things. And right now, I have an authentic uh, connection with my kids, uh, my girlfriend, my ex-wife, my family, my career, my job. I'm I'm in a great place, and I don't want to take it. For granted, you know what I mean? I, I just, I, I don't. And so that's why I love doing this podcast. And so that's why I ask, you know, what is recovery like for you? So for me, I have the energy and the peace of mind. Um, I also think I've given tools to my son because he saw me struggle and he saw me come full circle. And I don't think I'm praying that he will go down the stupid path that I went down. And that doesn't mean that I'm not going to let him dabble in things that I think life brings you. I don't think that the child, he's 18, will never have a beer. And I don't think that's a realistic thing. But I I know that he has seen the difference there where I we weren't taught to drink. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he he has some examples <laughs> do you do you talk about it at, in your home? A hundred percent. It's an open conversation. Oh, when I was going me. through recovery and had some issues of, about it, I said, you know, I know I'm not doing this right, but I'm doing it. And please, you know, have some patience with me. And of course, uh, he's the best kid. Well, I think that's one of the most valuable things a parent can do. We can't be perfect as parents and we make mistakes and we don't always set the right example and things. What we can do perfectly is have open dialogues and conversations with our kids about all the big subjects in life and give them a place where they can come and talk to us about anything. And that 
isn't what most of us grew up with, even if we had great parents. Um, but I think nowadays that's such a valuable parenting tool is you don't have to know the answer, but you can always have a conversation about things, and especially when it comes to drugs and alcohol and those sorts of things. You know, when you said you walked in and me and Vicky were talking, uh, we were talking about how now in our uh – in our, in our lives, we'll, we'll still hang out with some of the same people and you would be surprised or you might not be surprised at how many people come up and go, how did you do it? I would like to get sober. Was it tough? Is life better? Are you still having fun? A lot of the questions, because people are trying to figure it out. Absolutely. And and everyone comes up to me and says, you know, I th- I'm, I'm trying to quit drinking too. I'm really thinking about cutting back a lot. And I'm like, you know, or or can I have a beer in front of you? And all of those, I'm like, you know, this is not your issue. This is my issue. I'm good. You know, or I always just worried about, oh, well, I should look like I'm drinking um, so people won't ask me about it. And then I realize, like, nobody cares what's in your hand. They're trying to be a good host. They don't care what you're holding. You know what I mean? Oh, it's, 100%. And, and I had to figure that out. And, and, and another thing we were talking about before you got in, Dr. Matt, is that now I'll see people that are partying. And I'll look at them and I'll go, oh. oh I'm so glad I'm not them. Yeah. And, and then I go, and, and then I'll often wonder too, is like, how did I do that? That just seems so taxing. It seems so hard. Do you drive by the cops and go, oh, I don't, I'm not speeding and <laughs> yeah. I'm not drinking? Yeah. I <laughs> wish they would pull me over. <laughs> yeah. I'm so yeah. good. My credit, my insurance is good. My seatbelt's on. Pull me over. I dare you. Cause I'll pass this test. I still have shock after like, cause I, my daughter goes to West and there's always a cop right by the, uh, right by the parking lot and every day i still have this oh i'm fine i'm I'm fine am i okay oh i'm okay (laughs) i am fine well vicky thank you for stopping by and sharing your story dr matt what are your thoughts on the beautiful the talented the lovely vicky cordova wow yeah i could go another hour but i won't uh well first of all i think you've brought up a really important subject that we don't talk about on this show enough and that is the stress and change of becoming a mother and how that so dramatically changes a, a mother's life being a mother of course is a huge sacrifice but i think sometimes moms feel guilty or embarrassed about talking about how hard that can really be for them so i appreciate you bringing that up because i know a lot of our listeners are going to relate to that, whether they have a drug and alcohol problem or not. That's a hard thing in life. And the depression aspect is huge and doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, The other thought I had is, uh, so has your husband, is he in recovery as well? Yes. And that was very, very educational because he really thought he was helping me in his mind and that he didn't need it. And then he really went off a cliff quickly Mm. and so within six months he's six months behind me okay so i being the bill payer of the house knew Mm. that all of this liquor store stuff was not mine yeah and i showed it to him and said you need to go and he and i said you can't sleep here until you go and he was signed up that day Wow. And he, he wanted to sleep six, there. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, the other thing is, is I saw all of the things, you know, when you go and you're like, that's the dumbest class. These are the dumbest people. This isn't helping me at all. And then, oh, I learned something really interesting today mm. to, ah, this the is transformation. Nice. Yeah. 
Cool. And maybe we'll get John on the I podcast. I was going to say, I, yeah. I think that would be really fun to have him come on. The thing that I love about Vicky's story, and I think it uh, puts an exclamation point on the fact that the opposite of addiction is an abstinence, it's connection. And Vicky, wherever you've gone and wherever you go, you always find a community and you find those who support you, those who believe in you. And so much in the fact that it started in your early years at Logan, uh, all the way to the whiteout, to the sorority, to squatters, to whatever it is, even into recovery. You, you talk about your team and it seems like you have a wonderful team surrounding you. And I think that's so important. So my advice to be out there to those who are looking to get sober or find recovery or help for loved ones, find a community, find a team and, uh, Things are a lot easier if you can. Yep. They're out there. Yeah. Perfect advice. I love it. Hey, thank you very much for stopping by and listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's still a KSL podcast. Go team. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.